1: This is Jason Bresler, Leadership Under Fire's founder and your host in this episode of the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. My guest today is Adam Casey. Born and raised in St. Louis, Adam attended the University of Missouri, aka Mizzou, where it was a walk-on for the Tigers football team from 2004 until 2008. After graduating with a bachelor's in biology, Adam was commissioned as a naval officer in 2012 with intentions of becoming a U.S. Navy SEAL officer. In 2013, Adam laterally transferred to the Marine Corps, where he served as a rifle platoon commander with 2nd Battalion, Six Marines. Soon after assuming command of his platoon, Adam was diagnosed with advanced stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and underwent a grueling six months of chemotherapy. Upon remission, Adam returned to school at the University of Colorado at Boulder to earn another undergraduate degree, this time in computer science. Now a full-time software engineer for Jane Technologies, Adam continues to find purpose in running a nonprofit and hosting his own podcast. Adam, welcome. So
0: glad to be here,
1: Jason. Yeah, man, I'm stoked to have you, uh, you you on the show. It's interesting. We we met in somewhat serendipitous fashion in the summer of 2013 in California, and have kept in touch over the years. And I really appreciate your willingness to humanize some of your wins and losses uh, that you've experienced as an athlete, a war fighter, and more broadly as a human.
0: I appreciate that. I actually, I remember quite vividly uh, the day that I met you. Um, and uh, yeah, it it always stands out. And I should say, likewise, uh, you know, watching you over the years and getting to know you over the years has irrevocably had like a pretty deep impact on me.
1: Well, uh, I'm, I'm honored and humbled to uh, to hear that. So I'd like to start the conversation by revisiting your, your time as a Missouri Tiger. You attended college in your native state of missouri where you walked on the football team at mizzou uh can you kind of tell us about your experience and the role that you played as a division one athlete playing for arguably a, a big time college football program big 12 big time college football program
0: yeah you're right at, at the time um uh, mizzou was was part of the big 12 and i I still claim that, uh, technically I never lost an SEC game, even though Mizzou is now in the SEC (laughs) conference Um, (laughs) and, uh, you know, I played football in high school, you know, I played football pretty much my, you know, majority of my life growing up and it was weird. It, you know, I, I clearly wasn't a standout, uh, athlete in high school. Um, you know, I, I just, I had the ability to play at a college level and, it's hard to say like, what, what was the inspiration to, to choose, you know, going to Mizzou and trying to walk on there because, you know, you, you can obviously play, you know, no pun intended. You could play the field a little bit and choose to go to a smaller school where you have a higher chance at actually playing. And, but for me, Mizzou, you know, being born and raised in St. Louis and, Mizzou being the the college that everyone goes to, uh, at least from where I grew up, there was no question about it. It was just like, oh, I'm going to go to Mizzou and I'm going to play football for them. Like there was there was never a doubt in my mind. Uh, and so, and, and it's it's kind of a theme with um, some of the other parts of my story, like later on, um, where it's amazing where you can get when you just ask for help and uh, where you just, you know, kind of let the universe know, like, this is what I'm going to do. And I... Went to Mizzou's athletic facilities and somehow like managed to meet with uh, one of the, I forget what the title might've been, but it wasn't the athletic director, but it was like the head of football operations at Mizzou had a sit down meeting with him uh, and basically just uh, surfaced that, Hey, listen, I'm, you know, I, I get it. Like, I'm just a, a kid walking in off the street, but I want to be, I want to be a part of this football team. What do I have to do? Where do I have to be and when? You know, I'm trying to avoid all of the <laughs> cliche, uh, you know, analogies of Rudy, but that was pretty much it. Um, I was a, you know, I showed up. Um, I, I did what I was told. I got the crap beat out of me and uh, just kept showing up. And then, you know, by the time my senior year rolled around, I was on scholarship. But that whole experience uh, definitely taught me. Uh, and, and gave me a mentality that I'm, you know, proud to to hold on to today. And it's the mentality of the walk-on. And it's the idea that nobody owes you shit. It's up to you. It's up to you to how, how much work you're going to put in. Um, no one's going to give you anything. And if you if you want it, like the responsibility is on you to actually work for it.
1: Uh, so great insight. Pretty compelling mantra to the mentality of of the walk-on. But during your time there, in particular, the Tigers, you know, had some some really solid teams, ranked in the top 25, played some pretty prominent bowl games, correct?
0: Correct, yeah. And uh, for at least one week, <laughs> we were ranked number one in the country um, <laughs> uh, until uh, we played Oklahoma in the Big 12 championship game. But it was, uh, yeah, for that week, we were the best of the best.
1: Wow. This was your junior year or your senior year, Adam?
0: That was my junior year. So, and for anyone out there um, who's a little unfamiliar with how kind of the, the the years go on as a college athlete, that was technically my fourth year in school, but it was my junior year on the athletic field because I had redshirted my freshman year. So, um, yeah, that was my junior year going into my senior season. Um, but yeah, we we had beaten Kansas, which was our, you know, big rivalry. And it's kind of a shame with Missouri moving and having moved into the SEC conference that they don't play that game anymore, but we had played KU at Kansas city and it was one of the most Epic games. And yeah, then the following week, we, <laughs> we, or we, yeah, we lost to uh, Oklahoma in the big 12 championship game. But that year we finished out playing Arkansas in the Cotton Bowl. And that was the year that, uh, Arkansas had Darren McFadden, um, you know, who went on to the NFL and I wouldn't call him a a dud, but definitely, you know, did probably didn't perform as highly as people were expecting in the NFL. But yeah, that, uh, yeah, that season was, was a really special season for a lot of reasons.
1: So, you know, when you were a student at, at Mizzou, you're, you're playing big time football and studying biology. What were your intentions and, and aspirations after graduating from college?
0: Oh man, very honestly, no idea. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it was cool to say that I was a biology major. Um, it was even cooler to say that I was pre med when, uh, when my GPA was like a two, three. Um, <laughs> and I realized that I clearly wasn't going to go to med school with that. A lot of it was just,
1: you know, is that just- on your radar at any point?
0: It had been at first because I knew I didn't want to do business because growing up my mom was always the breadwinner in the family and um, still to this day she uh, she is she's a you know executive level um, for a company based out of St. Louis and you know not to say that by any means that we had a hard childhood but we moved around a few times because of her job and, I realized I kind of didn't want that. I didn't want to be, you know, in a, in a high risk kind of career profession of business, um, or at least that's how I saw it. And so for me, biology, and I've always, you know, been a little bit of a nerd. uh, You know, I enjoyed going to the zoo and, you know, enjoyed some of those things that relate to the hard sciences like biology, but I did, I did have intentions originally of of being pre med and going to med school, but um, yeah, unfortunately, just you know, no one's no one's fault but my own. Uh, I definitely didn't have the grades for it, and so, but I stuck, you know, I, I I stuck with it because I didn't see any benefit in changing changing degrees halfway through, and you know, I knew that there were other things that you could do out there with a biology degree beyond being a doctor. Uh, and, you know, when I did graduate, I unfortunately graduated at a like horrible time for anybody, but let alone uh, a biology major who wasn't going to med school um, at the great, you know, the height of the Great Recession. And so I dipped my toes in a little uh, in the research world after I graduated from Mizzou by working uh, as a lab tech for a few years at a medical school at Washington University Medical School in St. Louis and again, had that idea of like, okay, I got a fresh start. I'm going to, you know, I won't go to med school, but maybe I'll go to grad school. And I was going down that path of, you know, I'd taken the GRE, uh, the graduate, you know, entrance level exam to get into grad school was, like I said, working in, working at Wash U, uh, hoping to just bolster that resume and was thinking applying to, to grad school. But then, uh, then the military kind of popped up.
1: Yeah, so I got to ask, like, when and where does the, the military, specifically the Navy, first pop up on your radar?
0: I remember a workout that we did at Mizzou. Don't remember, you know, it was later. Uh, it was a summer workout, and we worked out with the ROTC group, uh, you know, and, you know, it was just like a summer you know, conditioning workout where of course they broke us off with like long PT and all this stuff. And I can remember when that, uh, after that workout being like, fuck that, that sucked. <laughs> I that. And, um, but you know, it, it, it was always there. I should say, uh, growing up because, uh, another formative kind of decision-making process for me uh, was my dad, who's still alive today and who I have, I have a tremendously positive relationship with. But to be quite honest, my dad's always suffered from depression. And my dad's always suffered from the regret of not doing some things when he was growing up. And one of those was joining the military. And so at at an early age, I kind of recognized, there's no other way to say it, I recognized I didn't want to be my dad uh, for as good of a person as he is and, uh, continues to be to this day. I didn't want to carry around that sadness and that regret. And I attributed that to him, you know, not doing some things, like I said, and joining the military. So when I graduated Mizzou, uh, and I was, you know, like I said, working, you know, as a lab tech, you know, it what, when it really hit me was I was volunteer. I wasn't even getting paid as a lab tech, to volunteer uh and just to get my foot in the door um but you know i had bills to pay so i was here i am big at big badass like mizzou football player working at lowe's um 35 hours a week uh just to afford like not living in my parents basement uh and then you know pulling like 20 hours or 20 30 hours a week uh and on top of that at, at a you know at in a research lab and it, and it kind of just hit me like, what the fuck am I doing with my life? Like, you know, wh- where are you going to go, Adam? Where, what are you going to Like, here's the situation. What are you going to do with it? And uh, I could see, I could feel that, that t- inner turmoil and that regret starting to build at that point in my life. You know, when I'm like 23 years old and that regret that I thought would lead me down the path of being just as unhappy as my, my dad is and was. Yeah. And, 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 some of it was just like, you know, I just had way too much testosterone playing football, <laughs> I, you know, I had to get rid of some of that. And, you know, there was, at the time there was the huge sense of patriotism still surging around the country because we were, you know, clearly in, in at war still. And absolutely yeah, yeah, it was just, you know, there was a combination of things, um, but it was basically, yeah, there was.
1: The, and any and of your un- teammates at, at Mizzou pursued the military? Following graduation? Uh,
0: Not in my year. uh, Oh, actually, the year before uh, someone else had, and then a year after someone else did. But it was not, uh, yeah, it it wasn't something that was within the Mizzou community.
1: So how and when or how and why, rather, did you decide on the Navy?
0: Yeah, um, I don't know it was like you know navy seal just sounded so fucking cool <laughs> let's you know let's be honest navy seal i knew i wanted to be an officer because I, if there was going to be one redeeming thing about my college degree it was going to be that i that i'd earned it and that i was doing something with it and so i was committed to at least being an officer um i had looked at the army a little bit and it, it nothing really sat right and i think what really did it for me because again I knew I wanted to to go do something beyond just like, you know, the, I want I wanted to be that, that tippy tip of the spear and to do that, uh, you know, in the army, you kind of like the selection process in the army is like way too length, was way too lengthy for me at that point. You know, Marines didn't really have anything that I could (laughs) could, like even research. It was so, uh, it it felt like it was so anonymous, but being a Navy SEAL, That pipeline was not definitely, obviously not the easiest, but that pipeline was the most attainable as far as like being able to just commission and go straight to training without having to have any in-between period.
1: Sure. I I feel like their feedback loop has an an element of immediacy to it. So in 2012, your commission as an ensign in the U.S. Navy with intentions of being designated as a Naval Special Warfare Officer. So you went to OCS where in, in Newport?
0: Yeah, Newport, Rhode Island.
1: And then from Newport, you head out to Coronado to start buds.
0: I did, and um, on the way, uh, and this kind of uh, is a precursor to what you know happened to me in the Marines. About four weeks into OCS, OCS is just like the accelerated boot camp for officers. If anyone is uh, curious about that, and so. Four weeks into this 12, 13 weeks, um, officer boot camp basically, I went to the bathroom one morning and um yeah, saw a lot of blood when I when I went to the bathroom. And obviously that was like concerning right. <laughs> um, and just started noticing these really, really bad stomach issues and uh kept it a secret because I knew at at least at that point, um I knew enough to not like you know, tell anybody because, you know, I use the term sacrifice lightly, but I, at that point in my life, I had I'd given up some things um, to go chase down this dream. You know, I, I, I'd i definitely given up the comfortable life, that's for sure. And so for me, it was like I don't care, like I don't care what's coming out of me. Like I'm getting to fucking Coronado, and I'm at least gonna try. And so I I kept it a secret what was happening to me for. The rest of ocs and then uh, on my way out to st or on my way out to coronado you know i drove across the country and i stopped back home in st louis for about a week and um visited a gi doctor and it, it was diagnosed with uh an autoimmune disorder called ulcerative colitis which is uh in the spectrum of like crohn's disease and things and so it's basically you know uh a GI tract issue and it's my body just like rejecting my colon. And, um, it was pretty crap. I mean, (laughs) it was, it was, it was bad. Uh, it wasn't as bad as it can be for some people, but for me, uh, you know, having not had being able to treat it for a while, um, and letting it just grow worse and worse. Um, it was, it, it, it put me in a pretty bad situation, but, um, but it was nice to at least have that diagnosis. And so, yeah, so I, I, I head out to Coronado, continuing to try and find r- relief. And it's funny, I I say that I, I never knew what the word desperate meant until uh, until that f- stage of my life, because I was trying anything and everything. I mean, I was doing acupuncture, I was you know picking up medita- meditation. I was I, I was seeing a doctor out in Coronado. Uh, a legit doctor, but I was seeing this doctor out of office hours, like late at night, because I was so afraid of having anything on my medical record, paying cash for these things, buying pills from a Canadian pharmacy. At one point, <laughs> using that, uh, that biology degree, and that lab tech experience, I had read a paper about uh, what's called fecal matter transplants it's a lofty term for basically putting somebody else's poop inside of you. And I convinced my roommate who was also going to buds with me to basically let me use him as like a, you know, a Petri dish or treat me as a Petri dish and basically did my own fecal matter transplants. And I won't get into the gory details, but I was, I mean, Again, I was. I, now it's like legit science. Now people are actually researching it. But when I did it back in 2012, the only recipe, so to say, so to speak, that I had to go off of was this like Spanish, this paper published in Chile that I had to translate into English to get the directions for. And so, uh, yeah, you know, without going on too long, um, there was, uh, yeah, there was that brief intermission in St. Louis where I was, they made that diagnosis, then showed up at Coronado ready to get my dick smashed. So they say,
1: yeah, I mean, I I think the links you went to and just getting out there and doing your own, your own research and running your own makeshift scientific laboratory of sorts speaks to your, uh, you know, how, how serious you were about the mission. I have to ask at any point, either prior to going to Officer Candidate School or after finishing Officer Candidate School, did you go through a, a, a mini buds?
0: No, I did do a training in St. Louis before shipping out for OCS with someone who had successfully like he he runs like a fitness boot camp, but he also runs the foundation for people going into the military uh, free of charge. He does his military style training. Is by no means on the scale of what mini buds was or is or anything like that, but it was at least a good, at least, you know, for me, you know, not really having any resources, it was a good introduction for some of the things that I was going to be doing, you know, there were a few occasions where we were in a park with other guys that were trying to go to like ranger school or something, something, know we were getting broken off and, you know, in the middle of the summer in St. Louis, um, in a park. And he had, you know, successfully kind of done like some one-on-one training with at least one other person who went on to be a Navy SEAL. But for the most part, you know, I didn't, yeah, I didn't have any exposure to what buds was going to be other than, you know, the stuff that you read in the books or you see online and in videos and like, you know, trying to subject yourself to it.
1: I mean, I, I could be wrong. I mean, obviously, as a as a Naval Academy graduate, most, if not all of my classmates who went on to BUDS had the opportunity to attend or participate in a mini-BUDS of sorts where they, they could compete against each other and get a pretty good idea of how they're going to stack up and have a pretty good idea of, of some aspects of the training pipeline. And I could be wrong, but I believe in, in recent years, I think many BUDS, they've uh, scaled it in know it's 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 no longer just limited to naval academy graduates but i could be wrong
0: it's funny it's like this is this dichotomy where buds in the seal community definitely take pride in how how few people make it but yet they're constantly trying to figure out how to make more people successful in there and so i think uh i know that some of the rotc kids that i that i was in buds with they were they had the opportunity to go to like a mini buds and i think pretty recently, they're actually starting to open it up to like OCS candidates as well. But yeah, but that's, you know, that if anything, that just speaks to the fact that like, almost every person from the Naval Academy, at least, uh, they their chances of success are so much higher, when they make it out there, because they kind of have that exposure.
1: Yeah, I'd say, I'd say one is because they're conditioned for it. You know, they have several years to, to kind of prepare in a very intentional fashion. But also, I think the screening process, by the time you graduate from the academy, you're headed for BUDS. The cadre there at the academy in the larger Navy has pretty high confidence level. You're going to successfully navigate the uh, program. So in some ways, you, you certainly have a competitive advantage going out there. But that said, I, I also have classmates that um, didn't graduate. So w- when does your BUDS class pick up, Adam? In, in 2013, when did it pick up?
0: I was in two classes. Um, I was in class 299 and then got med- medically ruled in the 300. Uh, it was about, you know, four or so months into being out there, you know, uh, at first I was just in this holding pattern waiting to to class up. Yeah. And, and in, in that time, uh, I was able to at least find some relief for my ulcerative colitis. I was at, at least Get it tamed. Still having issues, but it was you know it was in a much better spot than had if I had been out there in you know day one it started uh, first phase, and so yeah it took uh, it took about four months for me to join my first class two nine nine and yeah I can go into into more about that but it was eventually I think right before Hell Week. Um, <laughs> I've- I fell off the obstacle course <laughs> i passed out on the high rope on the obstacle course and uh and and had to go to the hot it sounds so much more serious than it was but i basically i passed out um and i fell probably like 20 or so feet on on my head
1: on the uh, slide the slide for life <laughs> slide for life <laughs> was there a cargo net then or not
0: <laughs> was that uh, was no 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 I no cargo I dur- net I, I did. I dirt dove right into that thing. And um, yeah, I, maybe I'm I, I don't want to even take claim and being the guy for the, the reason for the, for the cargo net. But yeah, it fell <laughs> off. <laughs> that's not a that's not something I want to be proud of. <laughs> um, yeah, it was weird. It was uh, it was going down the this rope. And, you know, I, I took like two made I made maybe two movements on it. And I just had this thought of like, I'm really tired right now. And then everything just went black. And uh, yeah, wow. I, woke up, I woke up and, uh, you know, I was in the back of one of the, the med trucks um, with all the, like the SEAL instructors around me and everything. And I just, I pretty much just passed out and uh, was taken to the hospital because I had passed out. You know, there was no avoiding that. Um, and because I had, you know, missed a day of training because of that, I got medically rolled back a class. Yeah, like I said, I, I picked back up uh, from day one with uh, 300.
1: You would start Hell Week with 300, then.
0: I did. I, I made it to Hell Week, and it was it was that first night going into the first morning, and much like you and I, you know, there's bonds that I feel like are built with people um, just by circumstances and in that environment, um, there were definitely people that I was going through training with that was, that were really special and still are special to me and they'll play into the story later on. But for the most part, you know, these were, you know, I don't have any, I have sisters, I don't have brothers, like, you know, blood brothers. Um, and I've always wanted brothers and these guys were my brothers. And so by the time we made it to hell week, I was struggling already at that point um I I still felt strong enough to go into hell week but I was I was definitely not being the best you know version of myself uh physically and so um and you know buds is buds is is I don't think competitive is the right word but buds is is like demonstrable (laughs) um it's it, it brings out the worst in people. I've seen best friends, guy, guys that were growing up together, getting the fistfights. Um, wow. I've seen, you know, I've seen grown men cry underneath boats and stuff. And and so by the time Hell Week had, had rolled around, I was in a situation where, like I said, I, I wasn't performing. And uh, there was one evolution where we're all basically. Uh, <sighs> you know the the main component of buds is either we're going to make you really tired or really cold and so this evolution we were really cold and they uh it was steel pier and they were making us you know they were subjecting us to to the cold by making us get in the water you know and then tread water for a little bit get out take off an article of clothing get back in you know all that stuff and at one point, you know, after like 30 minutes of this, uh, we got out and I remember standing right next to, um, someone who, you know, someone who had grown really, really close to, and I could just see, and he was in my boat crew and I could just see in his eyes that I was letting him down and, um, you know, realizing that, that like, Hey, you're not meeting the standards. And at that point I said, okay, you know, it's the tough decision, but this is not my place anymore and so um i dropped i dropped there and yeah went back went back to the barracks and got dressed you know because you have to like get dressed in your navy whites or you have to get dressed up to go see um first phase chief and you know basically like administratively actually quit and everything but i just remember just being uh, just being so lost already in that moment of just like what the fuck am I going to do now?
1: Yeah. I mean, obviously an intense moment of your life, like was like a buffet of emotions, like almost instantly.
0: Yeah. It's weird because one way that I had made, you know, made it up to that point when we were doing things, you know, like surf torture and stuff like that was, I was really good at zoning out. (laughs) I was really good at just (laughs) going internal in some ways. and, and it, the moment that it that it hit me was uh, I'd always ha- I had this song in my head that I would just play over and over and over again and as I was treading water um, that last time I just couldn't get the song to start it was like waiting to load and I just I literally could not imagine the song I couldn't get the lyrics I couldn't get the rhythm and it just it was just vacant inside my head and in that split second that um, you know, I wasn't able to fill that void with that song, like all of that, all of that stuff comes in, like, you're not good enough, you're not cutting it, like, you don't belong here, all that negative self talk came in. And like I said, you know, when I got out, and I could see in my friend's eye that I was that I just wasn't cutting it. It was, um, yeah, you know, in, in above all, I, I, I want to make it clear, like, there is nothing else to blame other than I wasn't good enough. Um, everybody, everybody that I was going through BUDS with was fighting with something. You know, there's a reason why 80% of people going through BUDS don't make it. And it's just because the standard's that high and that's where I was. Um, I just wasn't good enough.
1: So in the hours and and days following your decision to drop a request, what was the prevailing emotion? Was it one of relief? Was it one of regret? Was it, it it changed by the minute? It changed by the hour?
0: No, there was never relief. Um, there was a lot of sadness, uh, in the, <laughs> a telling story is, um, in, in the off season at Mizzou, I picked up boxing, you know, I've got like one amateur fight to my name, <laughs> um, but you know, boxing was, it was fun. It's, you know, again, for all that testosterone, uh, built up, it's gotta go somewhere. And so being in San Diego, there was a boxing gym kind of close by. And so, you know, I, I'd go to this boxing gym and I would just get the shit kicked out of me. I mean, like I had no business being there, but I just, I was so sad. And, uh, I would, I would spar with anybody, you know, dudes that were, you know, on the, not on the pro circuit, but they were definitely, they were fighters and, uh, and then, you know, step in the ring with them and I just fucking get the shit kicked out of me. Uh, and there was, there was one time I went there and I was Hitting a heavy bag upstairs. And this like overwhelming sadness hit me to the point where I literally just laid down and started crying. And I'm so glad no one else is there to see it. But here I am on the top floor of this boxing gym, just you know, sweating, crying. Um, because again, just wondering like, what am I gonna do? Um, because for me, my my redeeming kind of thought pattern was like, okay, I wasn't gonna be a SEAL officer. That's you know, that sucks. But I made a commitment you know, I knew that that was the risk going in and I'm going to, you know what, I'm going to be the best Naval officer. I can be, that's going to be my story. Uh, and so the way it worked was that I had the opportunity to, um, basically transfer to another job inside the Navy and they gave you, they give you a piece of paper with five blank lines and they get to put down their top five choices. And if you want, you can put down you know, like separation, uh, at least for officers. And, but I was like, no, like, that's not going to be my story. Like I I'm going to, you know, I, I took an oath to serve. I didn't take an oath to be a Navy SEAL. That was just a, you know, an opportunity that was given to me, but I didn't make it. So now I'm going to try and, you know, I'm going to be a man of honor and I'm going to do what I think is right. And I'm going to try and continue serving with that honor. And so, you know, I, I forget what my first choice was, but there was a, you know, I, I even put down like whatever the fanciest way of saying was being the officer in charge of like sanitation on a ship. Like I was going to be in charge of like the soap dispensers or something like that. And I was like, yes, that is my job now. I will be the most hygienic and sanitized uh, Naval officer out there. And um yeah, when they came back and the Navy came back and was like thanks, Ben, no, thanks, you're good to go home. I was like, what the fuck? Like I'm not even good to like I'm not even good for that now. Um that was that was low and that was that was right around the time when you and I met. Um but yeah, it was it, it was never relief. Uh it was just it was just sadness. Wow.
1: So though you didn't finish but What is something in particular that you learned about yourself or the human condition more broadly from that experience that has served you well in in the decade following?
0: You know, I picked up this, like, habit – uh, and it's it's kind of stoic maybe but it's you know it's it's being in the moment being present uh with you know this is where you're at right now and the habit that i have it came from someone else in buds and it was after i failed my first uh 4 mile timed run and going into buds i was like yeah that's my jam like i suck at swimming um i'm definitely not the strongest you know person out there but I can run, but when I failed my first four mile time run, that's when I was like, Oh shit, I don't know if I'm going to make it here. <laughs> and so, um, but I'll never forget my friend who told me, he was like, he's like, dude, after every evolution, whether you, whether you made it or, you know, whether you passed or whether you failed, you have to drop it. And he taught me this, uh, this physical habit. And I still do it to this day when, uh, no matter what event has just taken place, I, Bought myself on the head. I just hit myself on the head as like a reset button. And it's like, okay, that's done. That doesn't, whatever happened, you're not going to change it. Um, Focus on what's ahead. And, you know, at at being in buds, it was okay. You know, focus on the next evolution because you know, you can't, as much as you want to dwell on whatever just happened, it's not going to fix it. And so being extremely present and being aware of what you can control and what you can't control is probably one of the biggest lessons that came out of that.
1: So, Pretty good at uh, filtering and staying in the present. When did you drop? Spring of, of uh, two thousand thirteen, summer two
0: thousand thirteen, late spring, early summer of two thousand thirteen. Yeah,
1: just trying to recall because. So I guess I'll, I'll mention offer some context and some background on, on our first meeting. So in July two thousand thirteen, I was out in Southern California, largely vacationing, and. Made the decision to visit one of my best friends, my college naval academy roommate. You know, guy's like a, a a brother to me. I hold him in the, the highest highest regard. He's certainly w- one of the greatest war fighters that that my generation produced, and just happens to be a, a seal officer, who at the time was serving as the XO at Buds. And I'm visiting him. Uh, they're actually there at Coronado. And he mentions to me in July, he goes, "Dude, there's this guy who just." dropped recently i'm not sure that the navy has a has a job for him but i think he would make a terrific marine officer you know would you be interested in, in speaking with him you know I, absolutely so you know there we meet on the command deck in the exos office at buds first time i'm uh i'm meeting you and it you know it was quite apparent to me and palpable for reasons that you articulated you had a, a desire and a, and a heart to serve going forward and your sense was that the Marine Corps, particularly the ground combat community, uh, specifically the infantry would be a great place for you and a great fit. And um, talking about it, I was kind of shooting from the hip because I know, uh, you know, I haven't spent a lot of time in the Naval service in the Marine Corps. I know lat moves are pretty infrequent, if not rare. And um, I know the Marine Corps is pretty rigid in terms of what that pipeline looks like. And I don't know of too many instances where Actually, I only know of one other case where a Navy ensign became a Marine lieutenant. But at that point in time, you know, one after speaking with you and, and hearing your story, you getting a sense for your, your passion and your sense of purpose moving forward. And the fact that you've got like the best dude that I know on planet Earth vouching for you. I'm like, well, if there's a, if there's ever a guy that deserved an opportunity to lead Marines, it's this guy right here. So I, I just remember it was that was like our first uh, our first encounter of sorts.
0: Yeah, I remember that. Uh, like I said, I remember that vividly. I remember you coming to talk to me, and uh, like having to pull myself out of a, you know, just just get my get my head on straight because it was important for me again to still find a way to 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 continue my oath uh, to continue where what I felt was the promise I had made um to serve and it was like in whatever capacity I need I get to serve and I just want to serve yeah and you and you helped me um you were one of the first people and I'll forever be grateful because you know yeah I didn't make it as a Navy SEAL that's fine but I'm damn proud of being a Marine and I'm damn proud of uh what I went on to accomplish in the Marine Corps
1: yeah for good reason Navy's loss in this instance was the Marine uh, Marine Corps gain for sure. And what's, what's great is the time I didn't know, you know, you might've mentioned that you played football at Mizzou. I'm not certain, but at the time I, I didn't know you were a, you were a walk-on. And I don't think even until today, I, I truly appreciated your path to playing football at, at Mizzou. But now in light of the fact that, you know, I've, I've heard your mantra, the mentality of a walk-on, I think it, it certainly rings true. in in this case, again, is that you were uh you were looking to play you're looking to compete and looking to serve and um that passion and that perseverance paid dividends so what's interesting too is you know having never obviously been a seal having never ventured out to to try my luck at at coronado you know it wasn't lost on me how how complicated one's emotions might be on the back end of of that venture but like i said your desire to continue to to serve in whatever capacity but ideally one kind of fitting for your uh skill set, both physically and mentally. So we, we spoke and like, it's, it's funny. I was looking back through some email archives and I actually stumbled upon, I stopped the email that you sent me the day after we spoke in Coronado. I actually read it this morning when I was kind of preparing the outline for today's conversation. It's pretty cool. It says, uh, it's dated 12 July, 2013 says, Jason, pleasure to talk with you yesterday. I can't thank you enough for your willingness to meet for your help, in my efforts to move forward with the Marines as emotional th- as things have been for me, I know one thing is certain that I have a deeper desire to serve and lead others. And I'm not ready to give up on that dream. And, um, that was it. He signed it. And, uh, I, I think like that correspondence, one speaks to the type of person that you are. And two, I think the, the message inherent in that correspondence speaks to your, your resilience. You know, you had just got knocked down, but like I said, that, uh, that walk on mentality was undeterred, you know, and, and you were, you were on a mission to serve. So I, I commend you. Like I said, it's, it's uncommon for folks to latch transfer. You, you can proudly say that you never lost an sec game. Um, you can proudly say that you were both an ensign and transitioned to higher, higher ground as a second lieutenant of uh, of Marines, which is pretty cool. Not too many folks have had that distinct honors as, as well. So, um, in 2013, then you you complete a lat transfer from the Navy to the Marine Corps, so you could serve as a Marine Corps infantry officer. You attend the basic school and infantry officer school in Quantico, Virginia, before receiving orders to Camp Lejeune, where you report for duty as a platoon commander with Second Battalion, Six Marines. What was that experience like?
0: Man, oh, hit the ground running. I remember the day that I was told that I was. Selected to go to infantry officers' course because, again, you know, everything's like a mental game and wherever you're at. And at the end of that, to the basic school, it was, I was uncertain whether or not I was even going to make it, you know, get selected to go to infantry officers' course. So um, by the time I had made it out to Camp Lejeune, I, I was proud. Um, like I said, I, I was damn proud of being a Marine. I felt comfortable putting the, the, the buds and the seal pass behind me, because not that I knew, but I had a good understanding of what was going to be expected of me as a marine. and that's what appealed to me so much, was just that sense of leadership that immediately from day one I was walking into. And so I was looking forward to it. The wars were still going on. You know, we, we weren't obviously, d- you know, doing deployments like we had been when you know, especially like deployments that, you were, that you'd done, but it was still it was like, okay, here's my chance. Here's my chance to to sure. do to to serve at that stage of my life. I was still pretty faith driven, and it was um, okay. Here's here's God giving me that chance to do things. I was on the up if the previous couple of months, if not a year or so, had been on the down. This was definitely on the up. I was uh, I was in high spirits, heading out to North Carolina.
1: What did you enjoy most about being a rifle platoon commander, huh?
0: Ab? <laughs> Man, just it's weird. There's just like. This is something around being around other meat eaters like that um you just <laughs> you know you just you just get around and you just like there's again that that fraternity that camaraderie um that can only kind of come through shared suffering yeah it was just it was just awesome to be part of a tribe and I still you know I'm, I'm you know, I know the term tribal has become a little uh, complex these days, but I am tribal. And that was, that was important for me to feel a part of something. And so it was awesome, you know, getting out there, um, taking over, you know, f- just like, okay, I'm, I'm no longer, no longer a student. I'm a platoon commander and, you know, having, having the opportunity to earn my Marines respect and to put my money where my mouth, my mouth was and to just, just be someone of value was just so important to me
1: It's awesome are there any elements of the usmc ethos that continue to influence how you live and lead today oh yeah not in uniform
0: oh yeah there's a there's a freight marines don't do that and it kind of comes it, it comes it comes back to like those moments you know when you're you you know you want to take that shortcut or you want to you know be a dirtbag uh, whatever kind of turn of phrase you wanted to use to describe somebody who's who's not living an honest life and uh, the phrase, Marines don't do that. Marines don't walk by trash on the ground and not pick it up. Marines don't sit on the wayside. Um, they don't do it for the glory. They don't do it for the attention. Um, they do it because it's right. And for me, you know, however much I've romanticized that in my head uh, to this day, I still, yeah, Marines don't do that has been a really positive influence on my life. And, um, you know, there's other things cause you know, I know, um, you know, Rick, I have been rambling on for a bit, but there's an, a, there's a back half to the story of being in the Marines that probably has a little bit more influence on it. But I would say at the, um, from that stage of my life, the phrase Marines don't do that, uh, is still something I take away today.
1: Yeah, Powerful. So your time as a Marine infantry officer was unfortunately cut short by physical hardship. You were diagnosed, with advanced stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and you underwent a grueling six months of chemotherapy. What was that experience like physically, mentally, and emotionally?
0: Oh, it was hard. Everyone's cancer story is their own. Um, So probably what I'm about to say might not jive with a lot of the perceptions around people's cancer stories. Um, to this day, I don't call myself a survivor. You know, Technically, I'm cured, but, uh, but I still have issues that I'm working through with a lot of that w- with that time in my life. And survivor just sounds way too triumphant for me. But yeah, I mean, there's that shock, of course. Basically, I'd been in a relationship at the time with a girl that I'd really cared about. And that relationship was, was falling apart. And, um, you know, being a you know, rifle platoon commander, like I said, that all that responsibility was there and we were getting ready for a deployment. We were getting ready to go on exercises and everything. And so I was, you know, committed, um, to this date of, uh, going to a wedding with my girlfriend at the time, like, you know, six weeks out or whatever, and being able to see her and, um. Basically one weekend um, I went to sleep on Friday evening and I felt like I didn't wake up till Monday morning. And uh, I didn't, I I slept on my floor. I didn't even have time to move out uh, or move into this house that I was in. I was sleeping on the floor. I was sleeping on an air mattress for weeks. I was, you know, rolling, you know, this weekend in particular, Um, I could tell that something was wrong um, physically, but I was so committed to seeing my girlfriend at the time That I uh, was too afraid to like go see a doctor or anything because I was like, no, they're not going to grant me leave if if I if if I'm sick or whatever. So here I am, just like rolling around on the ground. um, Every felt like every 30 seconds having to shift from laying on my back to laying on my side because I couldn't breathe. I like literally could not breathe. I was panting like a dog. um, By the time my roommates had come in and were like, bro, what's going on? And I you know uh, told them to fuck off and. Showed up to work the next on Monday because you know I had to had to get to work and um, went into the office and uh, my exo at the time um, just took one look at me and said you know something's not right I uh, went to the hospital. Um, was pretty quickly diagnosed uh, with cancer. Um, they took the blood tests, and I guess whatever blood tests they took were pretty definitive and at that moment. Um, you know, here I am laying on this like hospital bed, uh, shirt cut open, kind of like in my uniform and everything, and uh, pretty high to be honest, because I was on a lot of morphine at that point because I was so I was so delirious. I was I was in so much pain, and but um, there was this moment of clarity when this woman walked in and told me she was like. Sorry Lieutenant Casey, it looks like you have cancer and um, yeah so there's yeah there's there's just a lot of like what is this kind of thing in the moment but um, a great example of how hard buds is um, without going too far back. Um, there were times when I was going through chemotherapy where I was no kidding telling myself well at least I'm not in buds anymore <laughs> and uh, yeah it was. It was, you know, it was six months. So it was six months of hell. Uh, I lost about eighty pounds. Um, I lost everything that I thought made me human. Um, you know, both physically and, and emotionally. Um, you know, if I came out of buds not knowing where I was going with life, I came out of uh, came out of that having cancer with uh, determination to not to live life because that sounds too joyous i was determined to just fuck stuff up um i was angry i was angry at the world i was angry at god i was angry at everybody for for having to put not just me through it i mean like whatever um all i had to do was sit there and lay in bed and like take chemo it was uh you know hearing my mom cry in the middle of the night. Um it was, it was, it was a lot of those personal effects that made me really angry at the world. And so I came out of that pretty pissed off. Um, you know, I uh, it took me a while to even sleep. Um, I mean, like six months for like at least six months after having chemo, I was, I was sleeping like two hours a night. And it was, again, it wasn't out of this sense of like, oh my, you know, my life was almost over now I'm going to live it to the fullest. It was like, no, fuck that. I'm just going to live life. And. You know, my body's gonna, if my body wants to treat me that way. I'm gonna treat my body like shit and like get back at that. And so there was a lot of, uh, you know, again, I picked up boxing again and uh, uh, stepped back in the ring. And um, and it was, uh, I don't know, I know this is like kind of a tangential story, but I, I went through chemotherapy at Portsmouth, Virginia. Uh, which is really close to Virginia beach. And so it just so happened that by the time I was going through chemo, a lot of the guys that I was going through buds with, um, had made it to their seal teams. And so I was, um, basically living in a house of Navy seals, uh, when I wasn't going through chemo and, um, the combination of <laughs> just having my ass kicked in, in, chemo. And then, you know, being around, um, the seal community, as you know, grateful as I am that they took me in, and they, on on at least a few occasions, literally saved my life. Um, I that was hard. That was hard to like just see your friends walking in every day with the trident on their chest and be reminded that you didn't make it. And that you know, and, <laughs> and here you are. Like, you know, at one point my my liver had failed, and so I had to I basically had this like colostomy bag. And so here, like, got friends walking. You know, get you know uh tight ch- chiseled chin navy seal officers walking around the house and here i am holding like a poop bag basically <laughs> it was you know, pretty uh pretty defaming but yeah it's um you know cancer is hell and what what it did to me is still something that i'm still i, I still kind of try to work through even now
1: it's intense man on many levels after prevailing in your in your battle against lymphoma, I know you said you're not comfortable with using the word survivor quite yet. You know, it's, it's fair to say you you did prevail in your battle. Uh, you returned to college at Colorado University, the Boulder campus, where you studied computer science, um, and you decided to take up a not so leisurely recreational hobby of you know, trail and ultramarathon running. And then I guess more recently you've taken up base jumping, not exactly, uh, for the faint of heart. So how and why did you get into, to ultra running at elevation trails out, out West and what's like the most rigorous ultra trail race that you've done date?
0: Yeah. Um, the ultra running kind of came in when I, uh, hadn't made it through buds and I was still in San Diego. Um, and again, I just, I just, I had so much sadness in me and, and there was like the only way I could get rid of it was by being active or uh, physically moving. And so I went and joined a run group in San Diego and uh, there was one evening I met this like OG runner, uh, typical San Diego fashion. The dude's got like a seashell necklace on, you know, tan leather skin <laughs> probably like in his fifties or whatever. <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, and it, it was weird. It was one of those, um, I met this I met this gentleman. Um, you know, we were doing like a track workout, and uh, we got to talking. And he heard my story, and he kind of just said, "He's like, you know, you know what you should do? You should try ultra running." And uh, I had heard about it because uh, there's a great book, uh, "Born to Run," that I had read before going to buds. That that honestly changed my life um, for the better. And so. Um, an ultra marathon or ultra running is anything past your typical 26.2 marathon distance. And so I had known that this distance existed And this guy, you know, he kind you know, after I basically just like unloaded on him emotionally, he was like, you should try running. And so, you should try an uh, ultra marathon. And so that uh, within like a matter of weeks, I'd signed up for my first ultra marathon called, called running with the devil, just outside of Las Vegas. And it's a 50 mile trail marathon or uh, ultra marathon. Um, middle of the summer probably right around the time that I met you yeah it was uh the race got canceled um actually the day before because of uh, a severe heat wave but I still went out there you know I was so committed to just doing it to to the run because I was believing in the fact that like ultra running was going to be my redeeming uh was going to redeem me from that sadness and um basically showed up at the start line cuz i knew that there were going to be people at you know having canceled the race basically the day before i knew that there were going to be people out there uh that were part of the race and so i was like okay i'm just going to show up i'm going to drive out to vegas and i'm going to just at least get what the course is um cuz at the time i you know i didn't have a gps or anything and so i i show up and i ask these people you know like hey i'm here for the race and they go like, oh, yeah it's canceled i'm like yeah i know i'm still going to run it though so tell me where it is <laughs> and um and uh, the person she said she was like okay well first things first we never had this conversation <laughs> and, uh, and and then you know and then she told me what the course was and and basically i uh, struggled through these 50 miles um and so that and how, was
1: and how how was it
0: oh man that was like 113 degrees um uh, yeah it was it was horrible um they you I, for I,
1: nutrition <laughs> and hydration and i mean obviously there's no aid stations they canceled the thing
0: yeah I had you know I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I remember starting out uh, by carrying like a sixteen ounce bottle of water with me. Uh, severely underestimating how much water I was gonna need. Um, and at one point I when they told me what the course was, I at least had gone out and put like you know a bottle of water, like a big gallon of water at a turnaround aid station uh, or at the at the turnaround point. And so I finished the first like 25 miles and I did it early enough. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm hurting, but like, okay, I got this. Like, you know, I didn't drink that much water. So I got all, you know, so I, I go out for the second one and it, that second lap that, that nearly killed me. Um, at one point I had basically, thankfully had awareness enough to know that there were like mobile homes nearby. And so I basically like just went off trail and found this mobile home out, you know, like, you know, outskirts of this, like. Vegas trail and hop the fence and like was stealing their water <laughs> and like, you know, um, nutri- nutritionally, it wasn't that bad, but yeah, the dehydration part was pretty, it was, I didn't pee for like two days. It was, it was crazy. Um, but believe it or not, that's not the hardest, uh, the most grueling thing that I've done. So, yeah. So over the years, um, you know, since I moved to Colorado, I, uh, I definitely picked up running and I've become a little bit more mature about it. Um, I'd say the, the most, gr- most grueling one that I've, I, I did my first hundred miler in September of 2020. Um, it took me 29 hours. Uh, did it here in Colorado. Yeah. It's a hundred miles. I mean, at altitude, no, at altitude, uh, I think it was like comes comes out to like 26,000 feet again gain overall. Like I said, it took me like 29 hours. Um, there was a lot of soul searching on that. And that's what running has become. And that's what running was, and, you know, is to me today is, is, you know, and I've got this race coming up in Wyoming. And, and for me, running usually revolves around, um, you know, big decisions in my life, you know, the, the day that I kind of decided like, okay, I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to try for Navy SEALs was the day after uh, I'd gone for like kind of a really long run to, uh, to just like really question where, where my heart was at, you know, um, and it's still something I, I do today, like running for me is, it's not, I don't, I don't think therapeutic is the right word, it's very cathartic, um, but it, running helps me settle my mind, uh, because my mind definitely uh, still races with a lot of what ifs with a lot, you know, as much as I try to be present in the moment and try to, you know, just take it on the head and realize that what's in the past is in the past. You know, sometimes you just, those, those racing thoughts, um, they just creep up on you. And so running, uh, for me, especially at this longer distance is a way for me to, to confront those things. Because when I'm running, that's when I'm most vulnerable emotionally, because, if the emotions get too heated, if they get too energetic, um, I can just run them out. Wow.
1: What, what does the wall feel like on an ultra course?
0: Man, you know, it's different than your, you know, it's different than a regular marathon because in a regular marathon, you know, you're, you're going for time. You're like you're competing to like run fast, you know, uh, you know, qualify for Boston or something and say, um, so you, you physically hit a wall like, oh, I can't go anymore. But for ultras, it's just like you, you just get defeated mentally by the distance because, you know, in that hundred you know it's like you, you get to like 50 miles or 53 miles and you're like holy shit I'm not even halfway yet <laughs> and, like, and like my body's broken <laughs> and um, and you know and you and you realize uh that yeah that like it's not going to just be a quick one it's um it just comes it, it comes and you know everyone deals with it differently but for me what uh the way that I handle it is just like I expect it and Uh, when, when it does come, I let those thoughts surface. I don't let them take me by surprise. I recognize them. I, I pay tribute to them. Um, I say that they are there. And then I say that it's time for them to leave as I'm moving, you know, thankfully I'm moving and I will envision, um, I will actually envision myself leaving those thoughts behind with each step um, when that moment comes. Interesting. Yeah. That's, you know, that, that's something that, you know, I think better answers your question about what I took away from Mizzou. Because um, when I, uh, my senior year at, at Mizzou, my, my true senior year, I actually tore my knee out and had to have ACL surgery. And I'm, I'm a huge believer in the power of visualization and not in like a hoity-toity, like heady kind of way, but just like legitimately, there's good science out there about, re- you know, physically, physically recovering from something by envisioning it actually happening. And for me, when I had my knee surgery at night, I would lay in bed and I would imagine that my knee was like this cavern and that there were these tiny workers, like construction workers, rebuilding my knee from the inside out, like wearing hard hats and stuff. And so, you know, I'm a huge believer in, um, in in doing that, you know, like, you know, there's, there's other examples, but just like, you know, in, in running, it's, it's, it's actually like, putting physical form to those thoughts to that to that pain and and by doing that um you're able to do whatever you want with them I've heard you know people lock them in a lock them in a closet I've heard uh people run them over with a car kind of thing but for me it's just I just leave them by the wayside like a like a strand them on the side of the trail kind of thing
1: Adam, I have to ask, when you were at Mizzou playing big time football, did you ever work with a performance psychologist or have, have any exposure to like a mental skills coach as an athlete?
0: They offered it, um, not, not seriously. Um, uh, it's, it's become more, much more mainstream now. It's something that, uh, again, I, I, totally am on board with, but when I was at Mizzou wasn't, uh, it wasn't really readily offered to us. We were at one point we were. Uh, I was part of like, I think some research study for some like grad student and it was like pretty trivial, but um, for the most part, not really.
1: The reason I ask is because during the course of our conversation um, here today, you, you explicitly referenced uh, filtering, uh, the controllables, uh, a reset, self-talk, visualization, imagery, like all kind of tried and true mental skills that athletes at the highest level or more recently, um, you know, tier one guys at the highest level are are using, uh, and you, you have a, you know, you're pretty in, intentional about, about them. And I, I think you've, you've kind of highlighted the fact that they're portable. You know, you take, you take them with you to races, you use them in, in different aspects of your life. It's just interesting. It, it's, it's pretty cool to hear that, you know, you have such a, a elaborate process that, that, that truly is portable for you.
0: Yeah, I wish I could give good credit to where those come from. I mean, you know, I, I definitely read a lot and I have read um, a lot of good, like, not even sports psychology, but just, I, I liked, I've, you know, I'm not, don't want to be patting on myself on the back here and make it seem like I'm uh, this highly intelligent person, but I, I I know I've gained a lot from reading a lot of diverse subjects and um, I think at probably along the way, I probably read about, you know, somebody visualizing something and then just, uh, yeah, a snowball effect. Um, it just found ways to, uh, to make it work for what I needed it to, to work for.
1: Well, plus it's fair to say when you're competing against yourself and others for, for 29 hours and beating up, beating your, your body up, you spend a lot of time inside your, uh, your, your head and you have to develop skills that are actually going to be uh functional so <laughs> so much just the product of probably just competing in that type of environment right
0: yeah you you do and then and then you know and that's what uh what base jumping offers me right now is um
1: that was my next question how, how that how you get the base jumping and why as yeah running as if running 100 miles at altitude in you know 100 plus degree heat isn't isn't enough that now now you're uh you know, more recently, you're a base jumper.
0: Yeah, you know, so, so I, I have a history of skydiving um, is, is the easiest way to answer that. You know, I can, it's funny, I, as a kid, I can remember, uh, like, like legit kid, like eight or nine years old, uh, standing at the top of the stairs, on my parents' deck in the backyard, you know, um, couldn't be more than like 10, 12 feet or whatever, and just jumping off the top of the stairs uh, for fun. Um, there's just something freeing. Um, there, there was something freeing about skydiving. Uh, and you know, it, it's sky, I, I do still skydive now. Um, but for me, skydiving, it just makes me a better base jumper because what base jumping does, uh, talk about visual visualization. Um, I mean, I just jumped yesterday. I just jumped a cliff here in Colorado yesterday and, uh, the whole, you know, I'm always, always thinking about my next base jump. Uh, and, uh, the whole time, um, you know, packing, packing that rig, packing my canopy, driving to the exit, hiking up to the exit, all at every step of the way, all I'm doing is visualizing the jump. I'm pre- I'm rehearsing what can go wrong and how I'm going to react in the moment if it does. But there's just something about just that presence that that forced mindfulness because you cannot like. You, you cannot be anywhere else in your head uh, base jumping than where you're at right now, especially with cliffs. You know, skydiving is, is, is dangerous. You know, things can go wrong skydiving, but it's, it's different when, when you're base jumping. Um, at this point, it, it's, it's actually, it's, it's funny. My, uh, I've had, you know, people tell me there's like a notice, I, and I, I notice it myself. Um, there's just something that changes about me after a base jump. Uh, for the better. Um, I find I'm more compassionate. Uh, I'm more patient with the world. I'm more patient with myself. You know, I've been to therapy. I've, I've been on prescribed drugs for mental health. Um, but just, there's nothing like what base jumping has done for me and being able to, um, give me the opportunity to check in with myself and where I'm at personally. And so, yeah, I just, uh, You know, for someone like you, you know, for someone who who you've experienced death, you've been close, you've been closer to death. And I would argue, in my opinion, closer than I have, not that I'm chasing anything, but what base jumping does is it puts me in those in that position where I get to really check in with myself and and, and who I am as a person because of that proximity to something possibly going wrong.
1: What's the duration of an evolution?
0: Um, for the stuff that I've been getting into recently, it's. Um, I mean, sometimes the approach to where you're, to to the exit is like an hour, hour and a half, you know, and that's on foot, that's hiking. You know, you. I, I like I like the exits. Uh, uh, I like the objects that you have to earn. You know, i I learned base jumping at the bridge in twin falls idaho uh so you don't really have to you just have to drive there and you have to take a course and and all that but yeah some of the stuff i've recently gotten into especially being back here in colorado that stuff that where you know it's like hey you can't just park and like jump out of your car and you know have a base jump you gotta like you you've gotta earn it um yeah, I mean, just even packing my canopy itself takes an hour or so because, you know, pretty meticulous with that for obvious reasons. And I'm just at the beginning. I'm just, I'm at the very beginning of what I hope is a long and, you know, successful base career. But when you get into like that GoPro stuff, that wingsuiting stuff that everyone, you know, that is, it is sexy. It is, it's fun to look at. Um, but when you get into that, like proximity flying stuff, I mean, you're talking like dudes are going to exits and they're camping overnight, hoping for that opportunity for the wind to change in just that moment. They're just sitting still for hours, freezing their ass off, uh, waiting for the right condition. And sometimes that condition isn't there. And that's, and that's another really, really important thing um, about the sport that I'm, that I'm learning is um, learning when to let it go. And learning when to walk away because, you know, you can, you can get to, you know, you can get to an exit and you will be like, oh man, I just hiked up, you know, all this is going to be a pain in the ass to get down. Like, okay, is, is the wind really that bad? Is it, you know, it's just, but it's just like, no, like you, you, ha- you have to have limits. You have to know your limits and you have to, and you have to, you, I like literally have my rules written down on a piece of paper um, on the conditions that are, that are a no-go for me. And and I would say that's it's it's more impressive when someone knows when to walk away from a base jump than when someone knows, than when someone sends it off a cliff and you know gets the sweet GoPro footage because knowing when to walk away is uh, is really, really hard to do.
1: It's interesting the way that you you frame it, you know, having never never done any of that, having not even done any skydiving at any point in my life, the way you frame it. And your references to to the patience, the timing, the discipline, the the monotony of it all. It actually sounds um, similar to like the life of a scout sniper, right? In a Marine Corps infantry battalion. Like on the surface, you know, it's tactically sexy. But when you work with these guys and you serve with these guys and you watch the training and you deploy with them and you operate with them, and you see the inordinate hours of, of prep and what it takes to, to get a guy in, into a hide, and the guys that are truly, truly good at it, the best at it, the amount of discipline that they possess, the patience, you know, the willingness to walk away if it's not the perfect shot. I don't know. You know, the, the Marine in me, That it, it sounds like there's, there's some parallels there.
0: Yeah, it's. I don't want to equate it to mission planning or anything like that, but there is a sense of that. Cause you know, you get on Google earth and you look at like where, where your approach might be um, you know, you've got a few tools that you can use, you know, to measure like uh, how high an object is and everything. And yeah, there's just like, uh, this is the process of being prepared for a jump, especially when it's, you know, a few days out, you know, constantly checking your gear, making, you know, like doing what you can to mitigate the risk, because there's, you know, there's some risk that you just, sometimes shit just happens. Like I've seen it. I've seen guys have 180 degree openings or just have off heading openings and nothing that they did was wrong. It just was like, all of a sudden, the wind went and changed directions on them, and so um, you know, I, I, I find similarities in the marine process of uh, understanding what the mission is, and the mission at the end of the day is just to come back alive, <laughs> whether or not it's uh, you know the, the the jump will be there the next time. But yeah, if it's not there in the moment, you just you got to know when to walk away.
1: Yeah, I mean that's certainly resonates for me, both as a as a firefighter, but particularly as a marine. Marine Corps and I think back, you know, to, to ops that we've I've participated in where the, I guess in theory the the GoPro worthy video, if there had been video, right, would have been tactically sexy, but would have been missing, would have been the hours, the laborious and the monotonous process, right, to to make that successful op possible. So there's there's certainly some some parallels. So I guess when you're when you're not busy working or running trails at high altitude or base jumping. Um, You also find and make time to run a nonprofit. I do it for her. Uh, You also host a podcast called it matters to me. Could you tell me a little bit more about both of these endeavors?
0: Yeah. The, the the charity, you know, it's in the title. I do it for her. There's a story into itself, but the charity was something I started just before I joined the Navy. It was, you know, if you can't tell, I'm a kind of a DIY guy (laughs) Uh, and, uh, you know growing up you know the the phrase there but for the grace of god go i uh really had an impact on me and so uh I've, I've i've always realized the opportunities that i've had in life um and the privilege that i've had in life and so um for me i wanted to start a charity i didn't know what at first but i wanted to start a charity just to help other people and the mission of the charity has evolved over the years because at first it was you know i wanted I wanted people to go out and live their dreams and whatever kind of platitudes about like, you know, self-help and stuff is that, and that stuff is out there. It was out there at the time, you know, um, I wanted to help people basically do the make a wish thing without having to like have terminal cancer. And so, um, but that evolved um, after about a year and it turned into uh, where it's at right now, where we help low income students from my hometown of St. Louis Earn a college degree. Um, at first, it was uh, helping middle school students go to a private school in St. Louis, which would have a significant impact on their lives. Um, but now it's evolved into where we help uh, co- high school students who are going off to college. We provide them with uh, last dollar scholarships. You know, it's not going to be a full scholarship tuition, but it's going to be enough to help them pay their grocery bills or their cell phone bill. And uh, we we award and I say that I use the term we kind of lightly. It's really just, uh, it's me. Um, <laughs> it's uh, for lack of managerial skills. It's just me at this point. Um, but uh, the the charity uh, is funded through private donations um, and kind of just out of pocket expenses and helping low-income students um, typically from minorities, uh, minority families, um, but usually first in their generation to, to go to college helps them afford college and, there's plenty of discussion out there about the need for that. But it, for me, it was one of those like, okay, I see a problem. What am I going to do to fix it? And um, especially in St. Louis, St. Louis definitely doesn't have the best notoriety when it comes to racial issues or um, kind of some of those progressive issues. And so I, uh, yeah, I just wanted to be part of the solution and not the, what I saw was the problem you know, or just be complaining about a problem. And so, um, yeah, I'm thankful to say that just uh, a few weeks ago, we chose this year's, uh, you know, I chose this year's uh, student. Um, and right now there's, or there's four students earning their college degree. Next year, there'll be five. And um, yeah, it's, it's given me purpose um, because that was one thing that I really enjoyed about being in the Marines was that mentorship opportunity and that, uh, that ability to pass on knowledge of you know, helping other people grow into adulthood, even though I was just a young man at that point, but just being there to help other people uh, mature in life. And so that's what this uh, the charity does now is you know, it's small, um, but I feel like it's impactful. And then um, on the other side of that, yeah, I, I did start a podcast called It Matters to Me uh, like a year and a half ago, uh, because quite honestly, I suck at conversations. <laughs> um, and it was... Uh, for me, I wanted to just be better at having conversations with people. Um, I felt like I had lost a little bit about of that personal touch and that social touch, and not just because of COVID. Um, it was well before that that I felt like I'd sucked at conversations and things like that. But I just I wanted to become, I, I just wanted to become a better person overall, um, and I wanted to be more present with people um, and be more present in kind of the conversations that i was having and the best way to do that was just to have as many conversations as i could And so yeah the podcast is is much more lighthearted. you know if i'm lucky i, t- I talk to uh it's, i talk to a friend other times i talk to authors i talk to uh, professional ultra runners um it's 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 a show that celebrates the random um, because i feel like everybody has a story to tell and it's um it's important that we don't just focus on the successes and the, like the Elon Musk's of the world who you know are doing things, whether or not they're good or bad is up to you. But we, it's important that we celebrate the everyday, and um, the podcast is a way for me to help celebrate the everyday for people who probably don't get that that spotlight too often.
1: Yeah, I love that celebrating the uh, the, the ordinary, right? Yeah. Which it, it, at times there's there's um, so much extraordinary. Right, that, that comes out of just or, ordinary everyday Americans. I actually think that's one of the things that's that's made S- Sebastian Younger such a terrific journalist and author. He's never he's never moved away from that theme and just continues to highlight it in, in such such epic fashion, like so so consistently as a journalist. So it's you know it's, it's great that you're contributing in the form of a podcast. And somebody could look easily look at your resume and quickly kind of focus in on on your wins, and probably less on devices would kind of glance over your losses, which. And, have certainly shaped who you are. And I I think it's so commendable too, that you're continuing to give back in St. Louis, though your your professional work is taking you elsewhere, and your athletic endeavors have taken you elsewhere. You've like never forgotten where you you came from. So making a difference. Adam, I really wanted to thank you for taking time out of your busy life to contribute today, you know, in the form of a a conversation and your willingness to, to, like I said, reflect not only on your your wins, but your, your losses. To, to share some insight into uh, you know, what's made you you and, and that mantra of, of uh, the mentality of a walk on so it was great to, to reconnect today really appreciate it Adam of course Jason thanks brother